invite you to turn to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Lord, we pray that by the Spirit of God we may understand the revelation that is before us and its significance to us in this time and forever. I pray that you would focus our attention on this text in such a way that those who know Christ will grow and mature, be convicted, that you'd give us hope. For those that know not Christ, who have not seen the glories of Jesus in his saving work, who do not know you as your children, I pray that you would bring them to adoption even today. They would see in the glories that you have planned for your people the only way that it could be. And that they would understand and come to light today. We praise you for our Savior crucified and risen. We praise you for the life that is in his name. And we plead now that by your spirit there would be a dependence upon each one of us upon you. A dependence in our hearts upon you to know your word to grow in its light, to hear what the Spirit says to this assembly today and to your people throughout the world as they worship in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. The great Ganges River flows across northern India and it empties into the Bay of Bengal in Bangladesh. For Hindus... For the worshippers that are Hindu, the Ganges is a sacred river. Its waters are believed to bless and even wash away the sins of those who bathe in it. And there are many who do. When you die, if your ashes are thrown into the river, the goddess Ganga will purify your soul in eternity. People too poor to afford cremation deposit corpses directly into the river. 
as we see depicted here. And this includes the corpses even of cows who may be someone's reincarnated ancestor. And so for cleansing, for eternal healing, for the washing away of sins, there's the entrance into this river. And all these countless worshipers and their ritual waste the rotting corpses Human and industrial waste as well dumped into the river by cities along the way. It all adds up to a terribly polluted river that carries disease. In one region of India, masses of people, 10% are affected by disease directly from this river. And yet, I'd like us to look at these next two slides. Knowing what you know of this river that is meant to wash away sins, this leads some to drink it. What do you see here? What hits you when you think of this river and this man drinking this water? What do we see? On one hand, we see two men drinking themselves to death. Their devotion to Ganga is literally killing them. But in another way of looking at it, these men are simply expressing a natural longing. I come back to the words of C.S. Lewis again that we've looked at prior to this time as we've studied these last chapters of Revelation. He says, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether we have ever desired anything else. These men are groping in spiritual blindness to satisfy the desire for life-giving water in fellowship with God. One thing that we should see there, past the disgust because of our culture and, and its ways, what we should see, we see past that is the fact that these individuals are seeking life. They're seeking the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. They're seeking fellowship with the divine in the way that is there for them to seek it. What they see in undoubtedly in their blindness chosen as well. Their approach is physically harmful. It is eternally destructive. And yet they reflect as they drink this water who we are. They reflect how we were made. They reflect our divinely designed destiny, even as they drink this water. In Lewis's words, they unknowingly thirst for the eternal city of God. We return today to the destiny that God has determined for the joy of His people as we come to Revelation 22. But just reminding ourselves of where this lands us, chapter 21 and verse 1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That is, the sea with its pollution, with its salt, to eat up that which is diseased and broken. The sea, in that sense, is no more. There's certainly water, and large bodies of water. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, As the city alights, he hears, verse 3, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. 
This is where it's all been aiming for God to be in the presence of His people and to wipe away every tear. Verse 4, from their eyes, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is a new heaven, a new earth, and all of that sorrow is gone. Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. There is a temple in Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ, chapter 20, but not here, not in this new heaven and new earth, not in this new Jerusalem. No need for a temple. It is a temple. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The presence from which we have been restricted through the pages of Scripture by the ritual observance that God has given to His people in their sin is now all gone. Sinless, we now can enter into the very presence of God. There's no barriers. Verse 23, and there's no sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is where we are. The Revelation moves now to chapter 22, further into this new Jerusalem, describing some of its most significant features. And I've argued through this end of this series on the city, I've argued for the fact that I believe this is very physical, very real. Eternity will not be less real than the life here. It will be in some sense more real. If your vision of heaven is floating around on a cloud... It's this ethereal, mysterious, sort of numb haze that just exists in the presence of God. Conform it to Scripture. This is the revelation given to us of a real city with real foundations, with real walls. A city with portals into it. A city that gleams and glistens. A city that thrives with its vegetation as we'll see here today. But let's move into it. Verse 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is different than the millennial river that we find earlier here in the book of Revelation. This is a river that comes directly from the throne of God. By description, it's perfectly pure. It's crystal clear. It shimmers and glistens with radiant splendor. It is a mesmerizing river. We will be drawn to its exquisite beauty. But we notice again, the source of the river is the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is a literal description with hugely symbolic meaning. And you can have both. 
I press you to remember this, to not forget that idea. We plan to baptize several believers into the membership of our church today. Baptism is going to be really literal. They're going to come out soaking wet. But it is filled with symbolic meaning. If somebody read about the baptism later, they didn't know anything about it. And they said, well, it's, it's about the death of Christ. It's about the resurrection of Christ. It's about identification with Jesus. They didn't actually get in the water. You'd say, first part, totally right. Second part, totally wrong. And I think that's the mistake that so many make about their, in their view of what heaven is going to be. It will be literal and filled with symbolism all at once. And the symbolism here cannot be mistaken. This river flows from God's throne, from His rule, from His reign, from His person. Flows this river. It is the source of eternal life. And drinking from this river is life-sustaining. As a teenager, I once found myself running in a state park for a very long time and I grew desperately thirsty. And the trail ran along this Beautiful little creek. I looked at that creek and it you could see right through to the bottom. It was as clear as could be and it shimmered in the sunlight. And I just said, that looks so good. And I stopped and I drank from that creek and I went on refreshed from that sparkling water until the next day when I got about as close to death as I've ever been. Clear but carrying all kinds of trouble. I got really, really sick. I was in bed for a month as a 15-year-old. The river of the New Jerusalem will satisfy like no water we've ever tasted, and it will give us life. No corruption, no disease, What it looks like is what it will actually deliver. Eternal life. The sustaining of eternal life. It is called the river of the water of life. It is a river that flows such that as we drink from it, we drink from God in a sense. And it sustains us forever. Back to the physical description of this river. Verse 2. It will flow through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I wish I could picture this better. But I, I don't think the tree of life is one tree. But as we find in the book of Ezekiel 47 and verse 12, this is now the millennial setting. But Ezekiel 47:12 speaks of the tree being on either side of the river. That is trees, plural. And I think that's the idea here. The tree of life would be like saying the oak grows along the Mississippi River. You're not thinking there's one oak tree on the Mississippi River. You know there's many. But here, this tree of life will be planted along this river. And we know where this is coming from, don't we? The tree of life is Genesis 3. The tree of life from which Adam and Eve were restricted lest they continue to live forever in their sin. Its fruit would be so wonderful. There it is. It wasn't the internet. How did that appear? This is miraculous. Great B miracle. Anyway, 
On the banks, both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for fruit. The leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is um, millennial context, but it indicates here the same concept. I think that would be the right way to preserve it. So it wasn't the internet, it was I put it in the wrong place. Sorry about that. Genesis 3, the tree of life is now restored. And that tree, as we see here, will have 12 types of fruit yielding each month. That seems to indicate, I don't know, but it seems that the fruit will vary. That it will be a different type of fruit each month, and it will be delectable. Have you thought of heaven as a disembodied state in which all of our natural tastes are really kind of lost? We won't get tired anymore. We won't eat food anymore. We won't have the sensations that we have here. Many times we draw this conclusion, but this is guidance to help us otherwise. The fruit of these trees is not decorative. Why is it there? It is for the healing of the nations. It's there to eat. It's there to enjoy. It's there to sustain life. When Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit... They ate it. They really picked it. They really put it in their mouth. They really chewed it and digested it. This tree of life is no different. But it is a life now that will sustain eternal life forever. In our resurrected bodies and with food sources unspoiled by the curse, we will gain far more pleasure from eating than we ever have experienced with food in this fallen world. It will be for the healing of the nations. This fruit, the leaves of this tree, in fact, eaten in their pristine beauty. If, if, if This is a description of the new earth, and it is. If only people who enter the new Jerusalem in resurrected bodies are here, and that is true, why does anyone need healing? What's going on here? Some have said, well, this must be the millennial kingdom because we've got people who need health. That's just a misreading of the text. This isn't the millennial kingdom, and that's very clear with what we've considered in chapters 21 and 22. But the healing here should be translated or understood to be health-sustaining. When Revelation 21.4 says that He will wipe away all tears from their eyes, it doesn't mean that they're going to be crying. It's a way of saying there will be no tears. And we have the same idea here. When he says that it will be for the healing of the nations, it doesn't mean that they will be getting sick. It's a way of saying there will be no illness. And the eating of this fruit and the eating of the leaves of this tree and the drinking of the river of life will all sustain our life eternally. It's a hypothetical. If you would say, what if someone quits eating? Would they die in eternity? It's just a hypothetical. We wouldn't want to. I mean, when's the last time you thought about not eating anymore? I mean, if you do, there's something really wrong, right? And I, I mean, that's seriously. There's something wrong with you. We don't have to be told to eat. We love to eat. We want to eat. We want to stay alive through eating. Problem is, our food source is killing us at the same time. This food source will give us life forever, and we will literally, physically be sustained in eternal life as we eat and drink 
Now, it speaks of the healing of the nations, the health sustaining of the nations, which indicates again that there will be nations. If I have this right, and there's a lot we don't know, but it seems that we will all be coming to this eternal city. We will be passing through those gates of pearl and walk the street of gold. And it, there's, a, there's a imagination here that we don't have as to how this will all look. But we will also go out of the city. Nations will retain their identity. We don't know if that means their dress and their language, but why not? Very likely. And we'll be able to learn those languages and we'll have eternity to do it. And we will have eternity to subdue the new earth outside the new Jerusalem, coming in and out and bringing what the text says is the glory of the nations into the city. 21-24. This is the eternal state. There are nations entering the city. There is a subduing through our exercise of dominion of this earth. And this tree, these trees, this river will sustain our lives as it flows from the throne of God. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. Nothing accursed. What does that mean? That is, the curse will be lifted. No physical thing that has been cursed, part of this world's in uh, the result of Adam and Eve's sin, that will be gone, but also no person who is a curse will enter this city. There will be no such presence here, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Since all, this is, uh, since all that is fallen and accursed is gone, the holy presence of God takes up comfortable residence on earth. 21.3 again. And his servants will worship him. Grab this. I was just talking with somebody, I can't remember who, forgive me, but just today, we are just talking about this idea that what heaven is, is entering into the presence of God, kind of this ethereal, can't really see it or figure it out or touch it, but we're just in the presence of God for one eternal church service. And who wants to be part of that? Some of you are looking at your watch already, right? This, this takes endurance, doesn't it? This takes discipline to go through a church service. It's a wonderful time, but it would eat us alive if we had to sit here in this service for ten hours. And we start to think, I don't know if I want to sing for eternity. And we begin to fill in these strange ideas about what eternity will be. We will worship Him that Greek word can be expanded far beyond singing and reading the Bible and hearing messages in assembly. The word is often translated serve, and it's usually within a religious context, but the service is applied not simply to the gathering to sing, for instance, but it's applied to everything that God's people do to worship Him as a kingdom of priests, which in this situation is going to be to subdue the universe. Everything will be worship as everything is worship now. And just as we have distinct assemblings and gatherings for specific worship, I, I believe we will have the same here as well. But just as we go about our daily life to subdue the earth for the glory of God, so we will do then for all eternity. More on that in a moment. But verse 4, 
Here's the glory of it. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. They will see His face. As we visit the new Jerusalem, as we live there, we will have the opportunity to meet Jesus. His glory will shine on us, to be sure, and it will shine on us wherever we go in the new universe to subdue it, to exercise dominion over it, to go to work for the glory of God. Wherever we go, the presence of Christ will shine its light. But this verse indicates that we will, in fact, meet Jesus personally. They will see His This is a real physical world and Jesus, like us, will have a real physical resurrection body. I see no reason not to conclude that that means that only a certain number of people can gather around Jesus and see Him and hear Him speak. Now, we don't know how big that crowd might be with the capacities of of eternity and no sin and no curse we don't know there's a lot we cannot understand but seeing him face to face indicates a personal close meeting with christ we will have the opportunities to hear him speak and to converse with him and again if we understand this coming and going of the nations with their glory we'll leave the city And we'll do our work and we'll come back to the city. But there will be those moments where we will see His face. Luke 12, 35 and following even indicates that we will dine with Him. And we've got eternity to do it. There's going to be a lot of people there. But somewhere we're going to have a meal with Jesus. This is an appointment. This is a promise. This is what God has revealed to us. This is what is in our future beyond the veil. There's a lot we cannot determine, but imagine seeing Jesus face to face. That is the promise here. Alexander Strzok, in his book, Agape Leadership, recounts a scene from the life of 19th century English pastor Robert Chapman. Charles Spurgeon referred to Chaplin as, Chapman as the saintliest man I ever saw. And many commented on how his face just exuded the grace of God to those who didn't even know him. And this really played out one day when he was in Spain. He was in a carriage, a stagecoach, being pulled by horses. And there was a couple in there, apparently married or dating or something. They were having quite a fight in the French language. So he's sitting in the stagecoach. They'd never met before, never seen each other before. And they're, and they're in this argument. And suddenly, in the middle of the argument, the woman breaks out in English, in his language. And she says something along these lines. I affirm that I am as innocent of that of which you accuse me as is that holy man of God sitting in the corner who anyone can see is going straight to heaven. Never met before, but she saw in his face godliness. Can you imagine what we will see on the face of Jesus? It will be godliness in all its wholeness in flesh. If the face of a believer in this fallen world can exude love and grace... 
goodness and holiness. Imagine looking into the face of Jesus, a face that radiates with the love that he displayed on the cross. With joy and purity and welcome and devotion and depth and wisdom and beauty like no face we have ever seen. We long in this fallen world because of distance and separation to see the face of people that we love. Some have died and gone on and we begin to forget their face and that bothers us. We want to remember it again, not just in the picture, but we want to remember what they really look like. And we start to lose that memory in this fallen world. Others, it's just a trip. And we can't wait to see their face again. This longing should run deep in us to see the face of Christ. The Lamb is all the glory in this land, this happy land to come. And we will see Him. And His name will be on our foreheads. Have we ever wanted anything but heaven? His name will be on our foreheads. Where do you see this? If the Minnesota Vikings win the Super Bowl, capital I, capital F, there are going to be people wearing Minnesota Viking caps with the Vikings logo across the front, right, on their forehead. They're going to announce, that's my team. They did it. They won. Let's crank it up a bit. Imagine a general who has led a nation's army. So this is more serious, not just people out playing a game. And some but one team beat another team, and we all get excited about that. This is a general. This is serious business. And this general has led his nation's army to defeat its oppressor. And there's this great regal reception. And this general dresses the part and announces, this is who I am. This is my nation. This is my team. And walking in regal procession, rejoicing in this great victory, crank it up almost infinitely more. And that will be the name of Jesus on us. It doesn't even begin to compare to the joy, to the thanksgiving, and to the heart-pounding pride with which we will wear the name of Jesus. I don't know if that's figurative. I don't know if it's literal. I don't know how that will be on our forehead. I don't know what that means. But it will be worn with pride. It will first of all celebrate God's ownership of us. This one is mine. And it will declare our identification with Him. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. We will see His face. And... His name will be on our foreheads, verse 5. And night will be no more, and they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Again, a literal phenomenon with a figurative significance. We will enjoy a realm of light, no falsehood, no confusion, no immorality, perfect wisdom. God Himself will illumine the new earth with a brilliance that we have never seen. But the light is not going to burn our skin or blind our eyes. It's just going to make everything alive with a clarity that invigorates every moment wherever we are in the universe. We will see with a clarity that invigorates that moment we will be fully alive, never groping around in darkness again. And never needing darkness. Because we'll need no sleep. We will be alive all the time. 
So kiss your nap goodbye. Not going to be needed. Think of that moment in your life when you have been most alive, and if somebody suggested to you that you take a nap right then, you'd just about punch them. I'm not leaving this place. I'm not stopping this thing. I'm alive. We will be alive like we've never sensed before in this moment. And verse 5 continues and says, and they will reign forever and ever. We will not merely exist floating around in God's presence. We will reign. We will definitely not bounce around on clouds playing harps, desperately laboring to endure eternal boredom. We will reign on the new earth with Jesus. It's a real earth. He is a real Savior. And we're going to really reign. This means that we will exercise dominion over the earth and subdue it to the glory of God, leaving the new Jerusalem on adventures beyond description. We will exercise responsibility and ruling authority. Over whom? Over other people at varying levels. We'll have responsibility to collect people, to gather them, to point them to get things done, just like we do now. Over angels, whom we will likely assign duties as Christ's regents. And over nature. I mean, you think you're busy now? We're going to be a lot more busy then. A lot more busy. But with no fatigue. Far more to do, but we won't lose time falling sick or growing weak or tired. We will participate in a global web of working relationships, exercising dominion over organizations of people, over art and science and architecture and music and fashion and industry and the like, and we will forever learn. That's what a city is. That's what the city of God is, and that's the promise that He's made to us. There's a lot of that we can imagine, and we have to walk carefully because we don't know all of the details But this is a real world. All of this on a renewed earth free of the curse. So as the Holy Spirit illumines our eyes through this revelation, we are instructed first to anticipate abundant life in the new Jerusalem. And secondly, and hurriedly, to anticipate the return of Jesus by serving and obeying Him. This point is developed in verses 6-21. through We'll just look at the next two verses and we have to stop there for today. But so the development of this point is going to be lacking because we're not going through the entire chapter. I think this is the burden of the remainder of the book. Jesus is coming, live like it. Jesus is coming, live like it. Verse 6, And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. I mean, do you believe that verse? I mean, you. Not this church. Do you believe it? He's saying, what I've revealed here is genuine. It's trustworthy. It's true. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to Eden Baptist Church. But it's the revelation of Christ to His people throughout the ages, throughout this world, and to you as an individual. This is trustworthy. This is true. You can know it will happen. And it must soon take place. This was a long time ago that this was written. But soon must be interpreted in light of God's sovereign plan for the ages. It must also be understood in light of God's mercy and extending time to sinners to repent before the age is brought to an end. 
But viewed from God's time perspective, Jesus can say, and it is Jesus who now speaks, I think verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In the second half of the verse, we see a repetition of the emphasis of verse 6, namely to obey God's word in this book. Blessedness comes by keeping the words of the book. This means that I live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who is demonstrated through the book of Revelation to be just that, the Lord, the King, the Sovereign, the Ruler, the Savior. And it also, secondly, is a call to purify our lives as we wait His return. There's much talk here about white robes. That's not something that we'll, I mean, we will wear in eternity on some level doesn't mean we won't wear anything else, but it's a call to the purity of life that we are to pursue. But back to that first phrase, I am coming soon. You see it again in verse 12, I am coming soon. Again in verse 20, I'm coming soon. There's an emphasis here that's very obvious as the book comes to close. We're moving in the direction of the new earth, thus anticipating the final day and the glory of living and reigning with Christ over the renewed earth. But He's also coming our way. Jesus is moving toward us. He is the returning sovereign who will set chapters 20 through 22 into motion by His return revealed at the end of chapter 19. So what we find, just as we review, Jesus will return to judge the nations who surround the Jerusalem of this world. He will win a military victory there, and He will set up His thousand-year rule, chapter 20. His return will then set in motion all that must happen to bring Satan's reign to an end, 27-15. through 15. Then he will judge the lost and then deconstruct the universe by fire in order to remake and to refashion it, chapter 20, 11 to 15. Then these three promises of Christ's soon return is intended to fix our focus on that return and these final chapters of the book of Revelation. When we forget our final destiny... Every trial, every fear, every weakness of this life tends to overwhelm us. But when we fix our gaze on the promises of the new earth and our eternal reign with Christ, this waking world falls into right perspective. And we begin to live not as citizens of this earth, but of the one that is to come, which will be the final one and the realist one. This one's passing away. This one is finite. This one is broken. That one will last forever. So let's go back in our mind's eye to the picture of Hindu men men drinking from the Ganges. There are some who visit and maybe the, the thought is, how can they be so mean to Hindus? Well, there's a pity that we have, certainly, but there's also a very active endeavor in the life of this church to send the right message to India as we work through numerous churches and numerous leaders there to proclaim the light of the gospel. We are desperately desirous for such men to be loved with the gospel of Christ and to be brought to light. But drinking that water is not helping them physically. There's a worse problem and that it is not 
helping them eternally either. So we love them. We love these men. We want the gospel to go to them. But these pictures illustrate the untold ways that people seek eternal life and satisfaction in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. And that is true of all of us by nature. By God's gracious choice, we are privileged to know that the ultimate river of life is not on this earth, but will be in the world to come in God's presence. That literal river will flow from God's throne, its source, but we will not, indeed we must not, wait until then to drink from that river of life. In fact, if I was a Hindu growing up without a knowledge of Christ, I'd be in that water with them. I'd be wanting to somehow please the divine realm and participate with it in the only way that we know. That Jesus came to tell us of the river that will flow physically from God's throne in eternity, but that also flows spiritually from Him today. And all who enter into personal relationship with Jesus Christ by trusting in His death as the penalty paid for our sin and trusting in His resurrection victory over death, we begin to quench the soul thirst with that eternal water now. Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, this physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see the connections here to the eternal city. Jesus said in John 7 on the last day of the feast, the great day, He cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now in this spiritual way we receive this water of life in Christ and the Spirit of God providing that satisfaction which will then in eternity be celebrated in even the physical drinking of this water. So if your soul is very thirsty today, I encourage you to come to Christ. That is the satisfaction. The answer is not in some river. The answer is not in you choosing your own ways that are just as bad. The answer is coming to Christ who issues this invitation to come in verse 17. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price now. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we cannot walk in close fellowship with Christ if our eyes are fixed on this world and its pleasures. There must be a faith response to letting loose this world as we consider this world to come. Our possessions, our goals, our fears, our ambitions, our dreams need to be saturated by this vision. If your employer gave you a month-long, all-expenses-paid vacation to an exclusive island resort in the Caribbean, you got a whole month there, everything cared for. You're going to live in the lap of luxury for a month. But part of the deal is that the night before, you got to stay at this kind of run-down motel by the airport. 
the vacation to come is going to really influence how you look at that old, tired motel. I can handle this. This is no big deal. Look what I got coming in the morning. That old hotel, that old motel, that's this life. And when we see what is to come, we begin to look at this life and hold it loosely and say, I can deal with that. We cannot walk in this cruel and sorrowful world with joy if we fail to anticipate the abundant life that is our final inheritance. We cannot root out sin and more fully enjoy the life that we have in Christ if we're not anticipating this world to come. What I'm talking about here, this isn't fanciful stories. The risen Jesus sends His Spirit to say, this is true, bank on it. What we're doing here is having a conversation that is real. The world in which we live is blissfully ignorant of this eternity to their own destruction and sorrow. How foolish for us to be in the old tired motel and act as if that's the end of the story. Our good day is to come. And it's a real world. Anticipating the inheritance that is ours in eternity and anticipating the return of Jesus provides the vital motivation to pursue a life of purity now, to be God's people now. It is essential to remembering who we are and what is coming. And one of the evidences that we are focused on that world to come is that we get busy in the kingdom of God here. We're doing now as we take on responsibilities to serve Christ, to subdue this world to the glory of God, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, and to set up our world and control it for His glory. All of that, we're just practicing for what we're going to do forever. And when we look to that eternal state, then we get busy here for the glory of God, picking up responsibilities and carrying them forward for the glory of His name. It's one of the evidences that we believe in this world to come. And so after the third reference to Christ's soon return, verse 20, John fittingly responds, and may we as well say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May His grace rest upon this church until that glorious day that we see our Savior's face. That's where we're aiming. That's what we're seeing. That's where we're headed by His grace and by His grace alone. Let's pray. Lord, we need You. We need You in this hour as a church. We need You in this hour as individual believers in Christ. Those who know You not as Savior are in desperate need of Your saving grace. We come to You in our need and we pray that You would help us to see reality everywhere there is a false message that is sounded everywhere that we look. There is a playing around with falsehoods and what's not real. I pray that you'd teach us what's real. That we would walk in the light of these revealed truths for the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.